Sherry. Uh, we are thrilled to have an annual lecture with Mount Sinai uh, Cemetery. And actually, Ira, the way these things work, uh, we get some people who join the live room, but more and more people are joining on the podcast end. And so the people, uh, the, the bulk of who you're speaking to are, are the hundreds of people who are not in the live room, but listen to the podcast while they're making dinner. So, <laughs> um, and so Ira Mann is the general manager at Mount Sinai Cemetery. We have an annual lecture partnership with, with them around some theme, uh, theological, spiritually rooted around death, um, around afterlife to understand that a cemetery is much more than just a place of burial, but a community institution and a place of great meaning and of great depth for, uh, for a community. So I would like to invite Ira just to share a, a few words about, about some of the work they're, they're doing over there. You're, and you're still on mute, Ira. There you go. Okay, can you hear me now? Great, yes. Awesome, um, well, thank you everybody. And thank you, Rabbi, I appreciate the intro. Um, Mount Sinai, we've just turned 16 years of age. Um, we're, um, we're a Jewish cemetery, pretty much I, I've had most, um, just about every rabbi in the valley um, come here. Uh, we deal with uh, from ultra orthodox to ultra um, to reform. Um, we uh, we've got concrete walkways in front of every single plot, so we're completely distinguishable, comparable to everybody else out there. Um, it's a very serene uh, place, right in the middle of the desert. Uh, we are desert landscape. And it's um, it's we're a small cemetery, so we're, there's a lot of one on one, um, a lot of one on one. Um, with, in, uh, with families, which really separates us from everybody else. Um, it's a true pleasure dealing with the community and dealing with the families. This has been one, one, one interesting past year and um, with this whole COVID thing and, and uh, we've never, never skipped a beat. And it's just been a, a, a true, it's been, it's been a great, lots of families have inspired me to um, look at life a lot different, uh, a lot of different ways. And, um, it's a true pleasure to be here today. So I just want to say thank you, everybody. Well, I can't. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. We appreciate your par partnership so much. And I reflect upon Professor Jonathan Sarna's book, American Judaism, where he points out that whenever communities have traveled, the first things that the first thing they have done more before setting up a school or a kosher deli or uh, whatever else you set up in the Jewish community, a synagogue. Um, has always been taking care of those who have passed. Um, that's the first thing community set up and it, it really is a center of a community. So thank you for your work, Ira. And we're, we appreciate the partnership. Friends, today we have a fascinating lecture and opportunity to learn together from Professor David Shaivitz, who we were supposed to have here. Geez, I don't know, before the pandemic, it feels like a decade ago, but I guess it was probably only about a year, year ago uh, when we had to reschedule this. David Chaivitz is Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Northwestern University and the Director of NU's Crown Family Center for Jewish and Israel Studies. His research and publications focus on pre-modern Jewish cultural and intellectual history with a particular emphasis on the history of halakha, the development of Jewish theology, and the dynamics of Jewish Christian and Jewish Muslim relations. He's the author of A Remembrance of His Wonders, Nature and the Supernatural in Medieval Ashkenaz, and of the forthcoming Obesely Jew, Jews, Animals, and Jewish Animals in the Middle Ages. David received his BA, MA, and PhD at the University of Pennsylvania and studied for two years at Yeshivat Har Etzion, 
He has been a visiting fellow at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and at the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and lectures extensively throughout the United States, Europe, and Israel. David, his wife, Adina, and their four children live in Evanston, Illinois, not far from uh, my home of origin as well. Today's lecture is Till Death Do Us Part, Family Life and the Afterlife in Jewish Thought. So thank you all for joining us, and Professor Shaivitz, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ira Shmuley. Um, thanks, uh, Ira, for those words and for, uh, for helping to put this together. Um, I was so disappointed a year ago um, where due actually to some family um, illness, uh, I had to cancel my in-person visit um, last winter. Um, who would have thought at the time uh, what the, you know, the intervening year would have looked like? Um, but one thing that I've really found solace in and I've uh, found community in over the course of the last very isolating year has been these kinds of opportunities, even in an online virtual format, to study together, to, to constitute a community of study. Um, and so I thank everybody for, for coming out, um, and I'm looking forward to discussing some texts and, uh, and sharing some ideas. Um, and I guess by way of introduction to the topic, I'll just say that, you know, similar to what Rashwuli and to what Ira mentioned in terms of um, uh, you know, the interconnection between community and death and places of burial and family. So this is a cluster of interrelated ideas and concepts that seem natural. It seems uh, intuitive that um, thinking about one's identity and especially one's identity at the time of transition, at the time of death, at sort of the ultimate moment um, of, uh, of connection, uh, you know, in the Jewish tradition, uh, to God and to the broader community. So it's natural to think about the relationship between family life and, and ideas about the afterlife. And Judaism has many different kinds of ideas about the afterlife that were expressed at many different periods of time. And my point of entry to this topic just personally was actually coming across some texts in the Middle Ages, some medieval sources, that's what I specialize in, that really threw me for a loop. Uh, texts that I found surprising and even disturbing and problematic um, and it led me to try to delve into the topic and to explore some of the different kinds of ways that Jewish thinkers over the course of Jewish history have thought about this relationship between, again, death and identity and family. And as we'll see, uh, cemeteries are going to make uh, an important cameo appearance in, in this as well. Um, so with, without further ado, actually, I'm going to jump right in, share some text together. Um, I have a few different um, sort of case studies that I'm hoping we can look at together. And my hope is that um, you know there'll have there'll be opportunities for all of us to participate together, to work together in analyzing some sources, um, and of course to take questions and, and share comments. Um, so hopefully you can all now see a word document that's in front of you. I'm actually going to blow it up a little bit just to make it a little bit easier to read. And uh, I've given you uh, some sources here, both in Hebrew and in English. Um, so for those who are interested in uh, checking the translations and looking at the Hebrew, you should uh, by all means do so. I'm gonna be reading from the English uh, sources and using those as a springboard for discussion. And to start, we can really look within the text of the Hebrew Bible for thoughts about, again, the question of family and of identity um, and, and their, their connection. There's a fascinating juxtaposition or really contradiction between two different verses in the Hebrew Bible that think about the connection between fathers and son, parents and children, extended families, uh, and their relationship to each other, not just here on earth, but in whatever comes next. The first of those sources is uh, the first one on your sheet. It's from uh, Sefer Dvarim from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. 
where we are told fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. Now we're, we're already starting on a macabre note, uh, you know, so I apologize for that. Unfortunately, this is not gonna be the last macabre source that we look at together. What we're being told here, ostensibly in Deuteronomy, is that when it comes to judgment, when it comes under the worst of circumstances to execution, when it comes to adherence to the law and to uh, culpability, every man is on his own, every man or woman, although the language here, as in much of the Bible, is, is male language, and presumably this would refer to everyone. If a father sins, his son can't be held accountable. If a son sins, the parents are off the hook. Everybody makes their own choices. Everyone is responsible. There's no such thing as intergenerational culpability, right, for spiritual or any other kind of sinfulness. That seems pretty intuitive, I think, right? We'd all have a hard time imagining a justice system in which, you know, somebody's uh, parent uh, commits a sin and we lock up the, the child, right, or vice versa. And that makes it all the more troubling that if we look elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Exodus, in Sefer Shemot, chapter 34, so here is a description from, it's taken from a section that's called the 13 attributes of mercy of God. It's, uh, this comes in the context of, of Moses and, and, uh, and God communicating and, uh, and God sort of uh, um, uh, unfolding himself or, or describing himself and his attributes to Moses. And those attributes include the following. God maintains love to thousands, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Okay, God's forgiving, that's great. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, as intuitive as the first source was, this one seems, I think, that much more startling. Uh, I imagine, at least it does to me. If, if you can imagine that I, you know, uh, go out after we're done with our class together and I rob a bank, and then God holds responsible my kids and also my grandkids and someday my great-grandkids. So it's hard to make sense of or to even imagine a situation in which that is just, in which that reflects you know, the kind of merciful God who forgives wickedness and loves thousands. And this contradiction between these two psukim, these two verses, I'm not the first person to notice it, far from it. Already in uh, rabbinic times in the Babylonian Talmud, this is a BT, source number two, the Babylonian Talmud, the contradiction is noted. So the rabbis say, are children really not punished for the sins of their fathers, right? The, the verse that we saw in, uh, in Deuteronomy that says everybody's on their own, is that really the case? Doesn't it say in, in Exodus, he punishes the children for the sins of their fathers? How could it be any more of a direct contradiction? The answer that they give, the resolution is, this is only when they grasp the deeds of their fathers in their hands. So how do we resolve this contradiction? How do we make sense of it? If you're the kind of father who is sinful and raises your children to be sinful in turn, and they then go out and follow your example, right? I rob a bank, they rob a bank. I commit some sort of egregious crime, they commit a kind of an egregious crime. At that, in that, in, in, in that uh, scenario, everyone is responsible, everyone gets punished. When they grasp the deeds of their fathers in their hands, they have sort of de facto been punished for the sins of their fathers, right? You're born into this lifestyle and you imitate it, you know, who, who, how can we possibly deny that the nurture, right, that one is exposed to has some kind of influence, right, whether um, uh, for good or for ill. Now, this contradiction and this resolution, I think, already clues us in to the fact that in the Bible and in rabbinic sources in the Talmud, 
there is an interest in questions of family and its theological standing. Now, what do I mean by that? We are probably accustomed to thinking of family, and certainly, you know, when we look at family in legal sources or in, um, I don't know, social life, we think of family as being a social construct. Parents have children. Sometimes those children are biological children. Sometimes they're non-biological children, right? We are used to, I think, today thinking about family in a kind of an expansive way as something that one creates for oneself and something that one is also, right, by default, born into. Does that family, that family that animates our social life, that animates the way that we you know, relate to other people, the family that we're born into or the family that we are incorporated into, does that family have theological implications? Does it have theological standing? Does my soul, right, whatever my soul consists of in the Jewish tradition, there's lots of different interpretations, does my soul relate in some way to the souls of my family members in the same way that my biology might relate to the biology of my biological family members? When I, for the sake of argument, uh, am buried and go to heaven, or God forbid to hell, will I still have a relationship with my family members in the next world? Will I meet my deceased family members when I go on, right, to, uh, to, to whatever the next, uh, whatever the afterlife might look like in different stages of the Jewish tradition? Is family only this worldly? Or is family something that sort of uh, directly shapes or is, uh, right, to use a fancy term, um, is, is ontologically a part of you, is part of your very being, right? Whatever that being is. This is a question that I think this, uh, these sources in the Bible and, and in the Talmud are nibbling around the edges of. To what degree does God hold you responsible? Does God link you together with, right? Does God consider your fate as being part and parcel of the fate of, of your family members? Once we get into the Middle Ages, and this is the period that I sort of, uh, you know, am most interested in for today's, for, for our purposes. So we find that there is a radical split on this question. And here's where we get into some of those sources that, as I said, when I first came across them, I found so surprising and troubling. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. I'm actually going to go slightly out of order here. Um, we can start with source number four that you have in front of you. This is um, actually, it's, it's, it's appropriate uh, for me to be discussing this uh, in this context, because I can remember one of the first times that I um, was reading and thinking about and teaching this source actually was years ago um, in a conference uh, that uh, Rav Shmuley and I were in together um, at a Wexner Graduate Fellowship gathering. I actually can have a, a fond memory of discussing this source with him. My thinking about it has changed somewhat in the interim, but it feels like coming full circle to me in a way. Um, it comes from a text called Sefer Ketav Tamim. This uh, means uh, the book of sort of pure writings. And it's written by a really fascinating, I wish we had more time to talk about him, a really fascinating figure named Rabbi Moshe Taku. Taku is a weird last name uh, for a Jew in the Middle Ages. Actually, most Jews in the Middle Ages didn't have last names. Uh, it maybe comes from Dachau uh, to show his geographic origin, right? That maybe he comes from, from Central Europe. It's hard, hard to, to know for sure. Regardless, he writes in this book, Sefer Ketav Tamim, um, lots of different sort of surprising and innovative theological um, uh, views. So Sefer Ketav Tamim, for those who've heard of it, which is, you know, most people have not, but if you happen to be a scholar of the Middle Ages and you're interested in Ketav Tamim, you may know it as the text in which Rav Moshe Taku argues for God's embodiedness. He basically disagrees with the vast majority of Jewish theologians of the Middle Ages who think that God has no body, that God is purely spiritual and incorporeal, 
And Rav Moshe Taku says, no, God actually has a body of some sort. We can relate to him on some level or another as a physical being. Sort of a fascinating, fascinating conversation probably for another time. Um, for our purposes though, so the reason that I sort of, when I first read this, just sort of, you know, um, was, was rocked back on my heels. So he says, after the resurrection of the dead, the righteous will take wives in accordance with their deeds. Now, what he's discussing here is the resurrection of the dead that, you know, the prophets and other Jewish sources imagine or anticipate happening at the end of time. There's lots of different schemes of the afterlife in Jewish sources. There's ideas about the Messianic era. There's ideas about the Garden of Eden, about heaven and hell. Maybe some of us are accustomed to thinking of heaven and hell as being, you know, a, a profoundly Christian um, a way of thinking about the next world. It's definitely there in the Jewish sources, as we'll see as we go. And there's also, alongside those schemes, an idea of the resurrection of the dead, that at the end of time, all of the dead will be resurrected and judged by God. And what Rav Moshe Taku is wondering is, well, when I'm resurrected from the dead sometime in the future, am I going to meet my family members again? Will I still be married to my wife who was also resurrected from the dead? In other words, right, the, the title of this was Till Death Do Us Part, which is sort of a stereotyped cutesy way, right, of uh, today referring to ideas about love. I love you unto death. Well, why only unto death? What about unto resurrection, right? Do we part at death or do we maybe part never, right? Maybe death doesn't, doesn't interrupt our, our union. And that's what Rav Moshe Taku wants to, to ask. And he comes out on the side of saying, each person will marry, will not marry the wife he had in this world unless the two of them are of equivalent righteousness. A holy righteous man who's been married to a holy, uh, to a non-holy righteous woman, or a holy righteous woman who'd been married to a non-holy righteous man will not be rejoined in the future. And here's the key line, for death severs their bonds. When they are resurrected, each person will marry the partner who is appropriate for them in accordance with their deeds. When you are resurrected from the dead, you know, at, at some uh, unforeseeable point in the future, whatever that's going to be, you will only be married to your current spouse if you have a spouse on the condition that the two of you are perfectly spiritually well-suited to one another. You're of exactly the same level of righteousness, which basically means that in the end of time at, at the resurrection, God is going to play matchmaker and link up people who are spiritually well-suited for one another. And if it happens to be the person you're most spiritually well-suited for is the person you were married to in this world, great, you're back together. If not, death severs their bonds. In other words, family is a strictly this-worldly construct, right? Death ends your family connections, to your spouse at least. Now that I found to be troubling enough, uh, probably because I first came across this text shortly after getting married, and it's, you know, a really unromantic thing to, to think about that, uh, you know, till death do us part, but, you know, when we're all resurrected from the dead, things will look different. Even more troubling, again, to me, however, was the fact that in some of these sources written in this medieval context, it's not only one's spouse that death has this sort of reset function for, but also one's ancestors and also one's descendants. And I'll give you an example of how this plays out. Uh, if we scroll down a little bit here to source number five, this comes from, oh, no, okay, I'm gonna scroll up actually. We, again, we went out of order. This comes from a text called Sefer Chassidim, the Book of the Pious which is a 13th century 
uh, text written in Ashkenaz in, in Germany or Northern France, where the author is thinking about a well-known verse um, uh, from the, the prophet uh, Malachi, Malachi. In Hebrew, this goes, that Elijah the prophet, who is associated with sort of the end of time, with the resurrection, with the Messiah, Elijah the prophet, according to, the, to, to Malachi, his task is to return the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. He sort of is associated with this intergenerational continuity. And says the author of Sefer Chassidim, in the Garden of Eden, in the end of time, in heaven, in the afterlife, Elijah's task will indeed be to sit fathers and sons together, parents and children together. For in the Garden of Eden, I'm in the middle of the paragraph, children sometimes are not worthy to sit near their fathers or fathers near their children. And therefore, at the resurrection, Elijah will sit them together so that they can be together at judgment. But the fathers will not be upset that their children are not with them in the Garden of Eden for the joy of the Garden of Eden and the joy they experience from the divine presence causes them to forget all pain and sadness. He goes on to say, a father will not be able to bring his children into his allotted section of heaven with him nor will a father be able to say, give of my portion to my children. What's underlying this passage? What's motivating it? The assumption is when you get to heaven or resurrection or whatever it's going to look like at the end of time, you are going to have nothing to do with your children. Again, unless it happens to be that your righteousness is so equivalent that you end up together, right? That you coincidentally are living in the same region together. However, the default assumption is in the same way that death resets spousal bonds, death resets parental bonds. And not only that, parents are not going to care. The fathers will not be upset that their children may be suffering somewhere else, or the children may not be upset that their parents are off in another realm, because it's such a purely individualistic way of thinking about human identity and about one's fate, the fate of one's soul in the next world, right? So uh, as somebody, you know, personally who uh, has a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have four children, uh, I find the notion that my bonds with them are strictly this worldly, right, that there's nothing enduring or spiritually meaningful about those bonds, I find that to be personally very troubling and very almost abhorrent. But it's in keeping with one direction in these uh, medieval sources uh, of thinking about the nature of family bonds. I'll give you just one more example. We could sort of multiply these ad infinitum almost. Um, this same text, Sefer Hasidim, the book of the pious, says, in truth, one should not love their children until they become God-fearing. For if one merely loves the bodies of his children, well, this is, this is animalistic. This is just like the way a dog loves its puppies and all other animals as well. Another passage says there was a particular pious man who would only kiss his children when he was already joyous regarding some mitzvah, right? He was, he was spiritually excited about having performed the commandment. He would channel that into embracing his children. Then he would kiss them so that his feelings would enter their heart, right? But loving your children just because they're your children, having family bonds that are not predicated on righteousness and spirituality, this text says that's animalistic. That's not a human, right, elevated spiritual way of thinking about things. And of course, underlying all of this is a presumed binary dichotomy between humans 
and animals. And that's something that we could, you know, certainly question. So to this point, we've seen sources already in the Bible and in the Talmud and some of the earliest canonical works of Jewish thought that are grappling with this question, what is a family? What is one's identity in relationship to their family members' identities? And we see one thrust in these medieval Jewish sources that is basically doubling down on the idea that you as an individual are an individual and at the crux of your soul, at the crux of your identity in terms of how it manifests itself in the afterlife, maybe you'll meet your family members there, maybe not, but it's gonna be completely arbitrary. Individuals will uh, sort of unite with other individuals of equivalent righteousness. Whether they happen to be related to one another is completely extraneous. Hopefully you're already starting to sense as at the outset, why reading some of these sources sort of can throw you for a loop potentially, right? Now, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit and contrast this with another source from, in this case, late antiquity or the early, early Middle Ages, a text called Kala Rabati. Kala Rabati is um, a complicated source. It sometimes is referred to um, as kind of like a minor tractate of the Talmud. It probably uh, derives from either the early Middle Ages or from late antiquity. And it contains a whole series of uh, both legal and then also sort of moralistic or homiletical discussions. And one of those discussions tackles exactly the question that we've been grappling with. It was asked, can one atone for one's parents' sins or not? So this is a new way of thinking about the question that we've been looking at, right? We've thought about, will spouses reunite in the afterlife? Will children and parents reunite in the afterlife? The question that's being asked here is, is there anything that a child can do to bring atonement to their parents who have passed on? In some synagogues, you know, to this day, um, people will, um, will certainly recite prayers for their uh, deceased relatives, or people will, I don't know, have a kiddish or have some sort of a celebration, have a l'chaim and say, you know, the neshama should have an aliyah. Um, we should, you know, we should all celebrate together. We should all have in mind the souls of those who passed on and whatever good things we are doing, it should have a positive effect on the souls of our ancestors. And this text is basically saying, does that work? Can one atone for one's parents' sins or not? And we get a story to try to answer the question. And I want you to pay attention as we go to this story, because in a moment, we're gonna read a second story and I'm gonna give you all an assignment. I'm gonna ask you to compare and contrast the two stories that we've read, okay? So that's where we're heading. So come in here. Rabbi Akiva went to a certain town and encountered a man who was carrying a heavy burden. The man was unable to bear it and was moaning and crying out. Rabbi Akiva said to him, what did you do? The man said, there's no sin in the world I did not commit. And now there are taskmasters appointed over me who do not let me rest. Now already we've maybe started to piece together the fact that when Rabbi Akiva encounters a man, this man is dead, right? He has not encountered somebody who is living. He's encountered somebody who is being punished by taskmasters on account of all the sins that he committed. And so Rabbi Akiva says to him, well, were you survived by a son? And the man said, on your life, please do not delay me for I'm afraid of these angels who admonish me with lashes of fire. All right, so he's carrying a burden. He's also getting lashed with fire. There are angels involved. Things are not looking good for this guy. Rabbi Akiva said to him, well, tell me what will bring you relief. And the man said, 
Well, I left my wife pregnant. When I died, my wife was expecting. From there on out, I have no idea. Rabbi Akiva went to the man's homeland and he asked the inhabitants, where is the wife of so-and-so? And they said to him, may the memory of that man be obliterated. May his bones be ground up. They obviously don't like him very much. And Rabbi Akiva said to them, why? And they said that man was a bandit who would consume people and cause pain. He even slept with a married woman on Yom Kippur. And you know, you're not supposed to sleep with a married woman any time of year, unless she's married to you. Um, you know, if you're gonna, if you have to do it, don't do it on Yom Kippur, right? It's like he chose the worst possible day. But it, it's obviously meant as sort of an indication that his sins are so heinous that, as he said earlier on, there's no sin I didn't commit. This is a really bad guy. Rabbi Kiva went to his house and found his wife was pregnant. And he remained there until she gave birth. He circumcised her son, and when he grew up, took him to the synagogue to recite God's praises among the congregation. And eventually, Rabbi Akiva returned to that town where he'd first encountered the dead man and saw him once again. And at that point, the man said to him, may you be at peace, for you have given me peace. Now, what do you think the answer is to this initial question? Excuse me. Can one atone for one's parents' sins or not? The answer seems to be yes. Because when Rabbi Akiva raises this child, teaches him prayers and has him sort of uh, uh, pray in the synagogue on behalf of his deceased father, who's suffering by carrying burdens and being lashed with fire, he eventually finds out that this has been effective, right? May you be at peace, for you have given me peace, presumably you know, by having brought my family to, to, uh, to intervene on my behalf. Okay, this is story number one. Let's briefly read through story number two. And I'd like to ask you, what seems similar? What seems different? What can we compare? And what can we contrast? Story number two is slightly later. It comes from the 12th or maybe the early 13th century. So later than that first story from Kalarabati that we just read. And it comes from a collection called Machzor Vitry. Vitry is a town in France, um, in the Champagne region. And Machzor Vitry is sort of a collection of prayers and of law and of Jewish material that was collected in that community, um, in, the, in the Vitry community. It's the, the, the rabbis and the Jews who lived there were in the circle or in the, uh, in the ambit of people like Rashi and other well-known medieval French um, Jewish intellectuals, right? So a really sort of very learned community. And they tell a story in Machzor Vitri that I think will start to ring some bells. It once happened when Rabbi Akiba was walking on a path through a cemetery that he met a man who was naked and black as coal and carrying a great burden of thorns on his head. Rabbi Akiva thought that the man who was running like a horse was alive. Rabbi Akiva commanded the man to stop and said to him, why do you do this difficult work? And here, pay attention to the fact that when he says you, what he actually says is, why does that man do this difficult work? It's kind of like he addresses the person not in, not in the second person, right? not as you, but in the third person as him. And that's very a strange way to, to refer to somebody in medieval Hebrew. If you're a servant and your master treats you this way, I'll redeem you from his hands. And if you're poor and people are mistreating you, I'll make you wealthy. The man said to him, please do not delay me, lest those appointed over me become angry. Rabbi Kiva said to him, well, what is this? What are your deeds? And the man said to him, I, but again, he's saying that man, that man is dead. I am dead. And every day I'm sent out to chop wood. 
Rabbi Akiva said to him, my son, what was your profession in the world from which you came? The man said to him, I was a tax collector. I would favor the rich and kill the poor. Rabbi Akiva said to him, haven't you heard anything from those appointed to punish you about how you might be relieved? And the man said, please do not delay me, lest those appointed over me become angry, for there is no relief for me. But I did hear from them one impossible thing. If only this poor man had a son who would stand in front of the congregation and say, let us bless God who is blessed and have them answer, may his great name be blessed, he would be immediately released from his punishments. But I never had a son. I left my wife pregnant and I don't know if she had a boy. And even if she did have a boy, who would teach him Torah? I do not have a friend in the world. Immediately Rabbi Akiva took it upon himself to go and find out whether the man's wife had given birth to a son. All right, we're gonna skip a little bit in the interest of time. We'll go down a little bit. Uh, Rabbi Akiva arrived in the city, about five or six lines from the bottom. And he asked after him. The townspeople said to him, may the bones of that man rot. Rabbi Akiva asked after the man's wife and they said to him, may her memory be erased from the world. He asked about her son and they said to him, he's uncircumcised. We did not even perform the commandment of circumcision on him. Immediately Rabbi Akiva circumcised the son and put a book in front of him, but he would not accept Torah study. Rabbi Akiva fasted for 40 days on the son's behalf until a heavenly voice said to him, for this you are fasting, even God is telling Rabbi Akiva, stop wasting your time. Rabbi Akiva responded and said, master of the universe, is it not for you that I'm preparing him? And so immediately the Holy One, blessed be he, opened the child's heart and Rabbi Akiva taught him the Torah and Shema and grace after meals and stood the child in front of the congregation where the child recited those words, the, the, the prayers, in that hour, they freed the man from his punishment. Immediately, the man came to Rabbi Akiva in a dream and said to him, may it be the will of the Holy One, blessed be he, that you rest in the Garden of Eden, for you have saved me from the judgment of Gehenna. And Gehenna is the Hebrew word that means hell. Therefore, it's customary to appoint a person who does not have a father or mother to lead the services at the conclusion of the Sabbath in order to say Baruch or Kaddish, end of story. And in that last line, maybe you can see why a story like this one would be included in a machzor, in a collection of prayers. Because this is a text that is describing why the mourner's Kaddish should be recited by children for their deceased parents. In fact, this source is the first source that ever mentions the mourner's Kaddish, which seems to have developed for the first time in the 12th century, in this Ashkenazic, right, Northern French and German context. Other than the fact that the text we read first, the one from Kalarabati, is just a story. Whereas this one tells a story, but then uses it to justify, and that's why we say Kaddish. What other differences do you notice between the two? Right, the second one is longer, I'm sure you noticed. But I think some of the differences might turn out to be illuminating. And so let me open the floor for a moment and ask if anybody wants to jump in and point out some of the differences between story number one and story number two. And I realize you don't have this in front of you other than on your screen. So if anybody wants me to scroll up or down, just say the word and I will uh, move to, uh, you know, around among the different texts. Anybody want to jump in? Either the differences are so subtle that no one noticed them, 
or everyone is shy, or I hope I haven't been on mute this whole time. That would be really awkward. Um, anybody at all? Well, in the second one, the wife is in a very different place. They all, they're like, you know, her name should be blotted out. And the, the wife was much more, was portrayed much more, at least neutrally in the first one, if not positively. Terrific, absolutely, absolutely. In this second story, it seems like at least the townspeople are much more um, sort of, uh, you know, there's much more guilt by association, not only to the wife, but also to the son, right? Because in this second story also, the son has been born already. In the first story, if you remember, the wife is pregnant, Rabbi Akiva waits until she gives birth to a son. Here, the son is already born and the townspeople have rejected him utterly. They didn't even bother to circumcise him, which is sort of like the, I don't know, the minimal marker of membership in the Jewish community in, this, in, in, in the Middle Ages. Uh, so great, any other differences that anybody noticed? Any other details somebody wants to call attention to? Rabbi Akiba had a much, much more difficult job with the second story than he did with the first, because with the first, he had the initial uh, relationship with the child, while with the second, he had a lot of work to do in order to convince the child to, to um, be a part of Judaism. And also, he had to, he had to undo a lot of, of what he had learned. Yeah, fabulous, and 100% correct, right? The second, the sort of uh, climax of the first story is like relatively easy. Rabbi Akiva waits until the, the kid is born and then just teaches him the stuff and then things turn out okay. Whereas exactly as you pointed out in the second story, this child has been rejected by the community already and even rejected by God, right? Rabbi Akiva tries and tries to teach him and he can't learn, he can't study, he can't absorb it to the point where even God says like, why are you wasting your time? Don't bother with this kid. So it's much more of a challenge, terrific. Any other observations or details that anybody noticed? Yeah, um, two things. One, it seems to me that the community has a problem in the second one in that the child I gather is an orphan and they, so disabuse themselves and don't care for him at all. Absolutely. And, and then the second thing is it says it's customary to appoint a person who does not have a father or mother. So my question is, why is it customary for the orphan to lead the conclusion of the services? Another wonderful question. And this is something I want us to come back to as well, right? This, so as we said before, the, the, this is the first text to mention the custom of mourner's Kaddish, but why specifically locate that ritual at the conclusion of services or at the conclusion of the Sabbath, right? And actually it turns out that for the first, I don't know, few decades or even centuries of the existence of this custom of reciting mourner's Kaddish, it was located specifically in the services at the end of Sabbath. That was the time in the week where it would be important to recite Mourner's Kaddish. And that too requires explanation. I'm really glad that you pointed this out. Let's uh, see if any one more person wants to, to, to point out any other, uh, any other details. And if not, I've got a few things that I wanna highlight myself as well. Okay, I'll take that as consent uh, that, uh, that I can um, uh, just note a couple of other differences. So 
first of all, when it comes to the sinfulness, the story in Kalarabati, the first version, the, the earlier version and the briefer version, tells us that the sinner in question, the one who's uh, whose son Rabbi Kiva goes to look for, he has committed every sin that there is to commit. He's slept with married women on Yom Kippur. He's killed people. He is sort of the consummate bad guy. Whereas the sinner in the second story is a crooked tax collector. I don't like paying taxes any more than anybody else, right? Although, you know, I, I, I recognize the good that they do. Uh, why, if you're going to choose a sin, if you're going to look for something to highlight, in this second version of the story, why specifically a crooked tax collector of all things? It's not intuitive that, you know, if you were gonna come up with a list in your head of, well, what should we make this guy in the story, right? Uh, should we make him a rapist? No, should we make him a murderer? No, should we make him, uh, oh, let's go with a crooked tax collector. I don't know, maybe that would occur to you, maybe not, but it doesn't seem like an accidental choice. Let me point out another difference which is that, um, uh, excuse me, which is that the description of the sinner in the first story differs from the description of the sinner in the second story. Let's look back for a moment at Kala Rabati. Rabbi Akiva went to a certain town and encountered a man who was carrying a heavy burden. Okay, relatively nondescript, guy carrying stuff. Let's compare that with the second story. Rabbi Akiva was walking on a path through a cemetery and he met a man who was naked and black as coal and carrying a great burden of thorns on his head. So much more vivid description. And again, the question that we might wonder is, is that accidental? Is the second storyteller just trying to give us a more evocative description? Or is there something more to these details? Maybe they were inserted for a reason. There's a number of other differences too, but maybe those will do for the time being. And I can take you to a couple more sources before our time is up that will try to make sense of this progression. And then we can loop it back, I hope, to this question of family and, uh, and death. Source number 10 is another passage from the Babylonian Talmud. It's from Tractate Rosh Hashanah. And it is a description of basically the fate of sinners after death. We're told Jews and non-Jews who sin with their bodies descend to Gehenna. Again, Gehenna is a Hebrew word that basically in this context means hell and are judged there for 12 months. Excuse me. But the heretics, traitors and Epicureans, people who don't sin with their bodies but people who sin with their minds, so to speak, or who deny the you know, key tenets of Judaism, who reject the Torah and reject the resurrection of the dead and those who separate themselves from the ways of the congregation and those who instill their terror in the land of the living, whatever that means, they descend to Gehenna and are judged there eternally. Who are those who instill their terror in the land of the living? So Rav Chista said, this is a Parnas who instills excessive fear in the community, not for the sake of heaven. Now, some of you may or may not know this Hebrew word parnas, but basically it means a tax collector, a communal leader who is in charge of communal funds. Rabbi Judah said in the name of Rav, any parnas, any tax collector who instills 
excessive fear in the community, not for the sake of heaven, will not see his son become a scholar. Now, here's where I would want to take this earlier source from the Talmud and use it to help us make sense of this later source, this story in Machzor Vitri. Right? Because I asked you a moment ago, if you're going to choose a sin and you're basing yourself off of a, an earlier story, a paradigm that is about a murderer or somebody who sleeps with people on Yom Kippur, why switch it to highlight a tax collector in particular? So it seems to me that the choice to do that in that second story is because we know from the Talmud that wicked tax collectors, crooked tax collectors, go to hell forever and can never be redeemed. And not only that, their sins will, in a certain sense, be carried over and be used to punish their children because the son of a crooked tax collector will never become a scholar. And in that story, right, remember, that's actually the case. Rabbi Akiva tries to teach the son of the crooked tax collector Torah, and he cannot, uh, he cannot accept it. He prays to God, and even God says, uh-uh, for this you are fasting? Didn't you look at the Talmud? Children of crooked tax collectors can't become scholars. Sorry, you're barking up the wrong tree. Until Rabbi Akiva manages to sort of convince him otherwise. Not only that, let's see if I, oh, I actually did not highlight this. Okay, this is in the Hebrew, I think, but not in the, um, but not in the English. Um, let me just see if I can find this. Okay, it looks like I didn't uh, put it in the Hebrew either. That's okay. At, at a, a different point in, in this text, in the Talmud, it also mentions specifically that people who um, sin in this way, who are crooked tax collectors, people who go to hell forever, their faces in hell look like charcoal or like the bottom of a pot. In other words, they're scorched, right? From suffering in fire, basically. And again, the sinner is described as black as coal. So if you're the author of this Machzor Vitri story and you're trying to retell the earlier story from Kalarabati, but you want to make it your own, you want to customize it, you're not going to insert these details accidentally. You're going to insert these details because what you're trying to do, I think, is to depict the sinner, the worst sinner, the sinner least likely to ever be redeemed from hell. The one that the Talmud has told us goes to hell forever and can never get out. And then what's the point of the story? Aha, even this sinner can be redeemed by the prayer of their children, right? Intergenerational uh, intercession works even under these circumstances. And we can take it even a step further. Because if you're a medieval Jew, probably the worst Jew you could imagine, the worst Jew ever to live, the one that most repulses you, wouldn't be a crooked tax collector. That's what the Talmud refers to. It might be a different guy, somebody who uh, you would hate so much that you wouldn't even want to refer to him by name. Somebody who you would just call that man, Oto Haish. And in fact, in medieval sources, when the authors refer to that man, we all know who that man is. Well, the medieval authors and their audiences did know who it was. It was Jesus. Oto Haish is the way that medieval sources refer to Jesus, who was a Jew, and who, of course, Jews in the Middle Ages despised. And this is an unfortunate reality of uh, medieval Jewish-Christian relations, 
is that they were not at all positive in this time period for the most part. And that might help us understand another detail that I pointed out. The first story says, Rabbi Akiva encountered a man who was carrying a heavy burden. The second story says, Rabbi Akiva encountered a man who was carrying a great burden of thorns on his head. Who carries thorns on their head? Who wears in medieval iconography a crown of thorns? So it's Jesus, we all know. And combine that with the fact that the Jesus figure refers to himself as that guy, right? Again, the man said, I am dead. But what he really says is, met. that man is dead. He's referring to himself the way that a Jew would refer to Jesus. So we have conflated in this character two of the worst people we can imagine. A crooked tax collector that the Talmud told us never goes to heaven, only goes to hell forever. Jesus, who any Jew in the Middle Ages would have assumed goes to hell forever and can also never be re uh, redeemed. And in fact, there's some, some, some very offensive language in Jewish sources about exactly what kinds of suffering Jesus is undergoing in the afterlife. And then the upshot of this story is not only can children intervene on behalf of their parents, not only does intergenerational sort of uh, relationships endure beyond death, they can even, they're so powerful that they can even redeem from hell people that God himself had said could never be redeemed from hell. Not only is prayer for the dead powerful, it's so powerful that it can, so to speak, even overturn the express written will of God, which is very powerful. And once we realize that this is a story about intergenerational redemption, so we can make sense of a couple of other details too. So for example, why is it that Saturday night is the specific time that you recite this prayer? Somebody mentioned, right, that it's at the conclusion of the Sabbath. Why is that? Well, according to medieval Jewish thought, this is actually fascinating. The dead who are suffering in the next world were understood to rest on the Sabbath the same way that the living rest on the Sabbath. Everybody gets a day off, living or dead. And so Saturday night would be the time that the dead are getting ready to end their break and go back to their suffering. That's the perfect time to pray for them, to try to extend their uh, respite, right? If you're gonna recite Kaddish, if you're gonna pray on behalf of your relatives, Saturday night is the time to do it. We may even go further and say that the choice of the townspeople not to circumcise the son, which, right, which somebody pointed out. They said, the townspeople really seem to hate this kid. They didn't even circumcise him, which is sort of the bare minimum of incorporation into the community. According to medieval Jewish sources, circumcision itself is powerful enough that it protects you from hell. And the gendered language of this is interesting and, and potentially troubling too, right? That is something we could talk about in the Q&A in a second if we want to. But when the townspeople decide not to circumcise the child, they're basically saying, you go to hell the same way that we want your father to have gone to hell. And the power of the prayer of Rabbi Akiva is when I recite Kaddish or when I teach a child to recite Kaddish for their relatives, for their family, that familial connection is so powerful that it can overturn all of these other assumptions. And so if we take all of these pieces and put them together, what do we see? We see that in the Bible, and in rabbinic sources, there's this tension and this question, what does family mean? What is the power of family? What do family bonds look like? Not just on the level of your body or your social standing, but on the level of your soul. And we see that as we get into the middle ages, that debate endures. There are people who want a purely individual notion of identity and who say, 
you know, your family connections are basically over unless it happens to be that you as an individual and them as an individual fit nicely together. But then at the same time, correspondingly, there are people who are saying family is so important, family is so enduring, family shapes you in such a profound way that even after death, these are relationships that are strong and that are powerful and that can exert such an, uh, uh, an effect on people that it even manages to overturn the will of God himself. Now, uh, there's more, I think, to be said, because if we wanted to try to anchor this uh, developing mourner's Kaddish custom in its historical context, we might point out that the 12th and 13th centuries in Northern Europe, where this ritual is developing, is actually also the time that Christians are developing rituals of prayer for the dead. This is the period of time where Christians develop the doctrine of purgatory, which is the idea that after your death, you don't immediately go either to heaven forever or to hell forever. You might go to some middle ground where the point of being in purgatory is that it gives your relatives an opportunity to pray for you, to give charity, to buy indulgences, right? All those things that medieval Christians would do. And that may be an interesting context for thinking about why it is that Jews in the Middle Ages are also pushing back in favor of family connections having this kind of power. That's something we could talk about more as well. But what I guess what I would say in conclusion for our purposes, and especially in this context, when we're thinking about a local cemetery, when we're thinking about familial bonds, when we're thinking about these transitional moments in a family's life, is that if we look back to earlier Jewish sources, to canonical Jewish sources, we can find a range of opinions and maybe they can allow us to think about our own relationships from a spiritual standpoint with our families. For somebody whose family connections are very strong and very meaningful, the idea that those will endure beyond life, I think can be very consoling. For people who come from very difficult families, people sometimes whose families are not functional or are not healthy, the idea that you can choose your family, the idea that familial bonds don't, are not your destiny, right, but can be transcended, that too can be very comforting and potentially very reassuring. And I hope that by looking back at some of these neglected, but I think very interesting sources, it can give us the tools to think about our own spirituality and our own relationships with family, especially in these moments that are so trying in these moments of crisis. So I've gone a little bit over, I apologize. Um, thanks so much to all of you for your attention and I'm happy to, uh, to segue over to Q&A. Amazing, amazing. This is so rich and complex and um, it's hard to understand uh, just how much time you spent learning and finding and unpacking these sources. So thank you for this gift. And we wanna open the floor for questions uh, that folks have on particular texts or ideas that go beyond as well. So the floor is op open for you to unmute yourself. So based upon that first sentence where it said your kids could not, um, take on your sins, the latter part all seems to say, uh-uh, if your kids pray for you, they can override anything. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly correct. And there's, there's this tension or this ambiguity, right? And I think there's a broader point here, right? Which is that sometimes people will ask me or people will write and will think about what is the Jewish attitude towards X, Y, or Z? What's the Jewish attitude towards the afterlife? What's the Jewish attitude towards family? What's the Jewish attitude towards intercession? And what we're seeing is that these sources are ambivalent and they're trying to figure it out and they're working through it. And sometimes they agree with each other and sometimes there are contradictions. And that richness, I think, within the tradition, 
right, gives us kind of a model for thinking about different uh, difficult issues from different vantage points and not needing to feel like we've come up with a definitive answer. Here's what Judaism has to say about the following issue, but to be able to re recognize the complexity, right, sometimes even within the same source, right, the complexity or the ambiguity that's driving people to, um, you know, to think these things through. It seems to me that if I remember correctly, the first examples you gave or the very first one was all about, um, you know, everybody's dead, right? You know, after you're dead, it's like, you're not gonna be with these people if you weren't at the same level of, um, what was of um, righteousness, okay? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the point in the later ones from the Talmud that you gave is like, the kid is still alive. And, and it seems to me that's what makes most of the difference. Am I right or am I off track here? No, it's a great point. And it absolutely is possible, right? That, uh, that once, once, you're, uh, once you've passed away, sort of things are set in stone, right? Whereas when somebody is still alive and able to effectuate change, so then maybe things are still in flux or still, or still in play. It's definitely one way of trying to, to, um, to explain some of, these, uh, some of these distinctions for sure. You know, to me, the underlying question or the underlying issue, right, having to do with what is a family and what is one's human identity in relationship to that family, so that traverses some of those boundaries. Um, but I, I agree with you 100%. Aren't children punished for the crimes of their parents by having to live life and folded in the disgrace that their parent caused if the sin is great enough? Uh, the reality may well be that that's the case, right? I mean, we all know from just living in the world that um, people don't get a reset always, right, in social context, much as we may think they deserve one or try to give them one, right? Uh, reputations and family legacies are sometimes hard to shake. Um, and I think that's an unfortunate reality. And maybe that's some, maybe the Talmud might in a way be sort of gesturing towards that, right? That when, when children carry on the deeds of their ancestors, so that entrenches and deepens that sense of intergenerational culpability. Um, you know, I, uh, well, we don't see it in these sources, but one would hope that none of us would want to model ourselves after those townspeople in the story, right? Who say, oh, we hated their father. He was a killer. So that's why we didn't circumcise the son. I mean, that might be a temptation and it might be a reality, a human reality that people have a hard time separating those things. Um, but I'm sure that most of you would agree with me that it doesn't seem like an ideal. So I know we're coming up on, uh, on a couple minutes till, uh, till our scheduled end time. If people have more questions, I'm more than happy to take them or thoughts that they wanna share, comments, um, you know, the floor is open. I'm curious for those of us who don't particularly conceptualize what happens after you die as a realm where we're going to be comforted or not comforted, where we're not going to be comforted, you know, based on what we think is going on with our relative souls. What meaning can you, do you have any meaning, like other meanings that you can, what, what, what from this can be helpful to us other than that? Yeah. So this is, this is a great question. Um, it's a hard question. It's hard for a couple of reasons, I think. And the first is that 
when you look back at these earliest sources, well, so let, let me actually backtrack even, right? The mourner's Kaddish as a ritual, right? As a way that Jews have marked loss and sort of, you know, cultivated community in difficult times. This is a very powerful symbol and a very powerful ritual. And, you know, there's a million examples of, 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 of this, um, not least of all, in um, a couple of years ago in Pittsburgh, in the aftermath of that you know, tragic uh, uh, shooting in the synagogue, the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. So there was the, the front page of the Pittsburgh newspaper uh, the next day or the day after was um, a full page, all bold headline in Hebrew, the opening line of the, of the Kaddish, right? And that's because this newspaper, which is not run by, by Jewish people, right? Recognize that the Jewish community traditionally has dealt with loss and try to come to grips with, with death through this kind of ritualized language, right? It's very powerful in a way. And even for Jews, you know, more recently who are not religious, who don't believe in God, this language I think has a kind of an enduring power. Um, and when you go back to the earliest sources and you realize that the origins of this ritual are really about heaven and hell, right? It, developed in an atmosphere where ideas about suffering and reward after death were really ubiquitous, right? Where Jews did believe in hell. Jews did have a, a notion of a realm of punishment for the sins of the, right, of the wicked. So that can be very off-putting, right? It can be very challenging, I think, to make sense of that and to, to relate to it, given that many people today have different kinds of assumptions, like you, like you mentioned. Um, and it's at that point, and here I'm just speaking not as a professor or you know, a historian, but just as a person, right? I think it's at that point that it becomes meaningful to me at least to think about continuities in form that can mask changes in content or changes in meaning, right? Something that's very powerful to me about the Jewish tradition is that oftentimes the prayers that are being recited, the rituals, the, the, the practices really do main, are maintained from generation to generation, right? They have this lasting endurance, even though the meaning that people attribute to them Right, what you get out of them, the assumptions that inform why you're doing them, those sometimes can change very radically. And something about the nature of Jewish tradition, if I was gonna generalize, I would say is that maintaining, holding on to, continuing to value some of these rituals over the course of many centuries, even as the underlying meanings of them shift and transform, right? It allows people to, I think, plug into a sense of community and a sense of tradition even if you're not really worried about heaven and hell, even if ideas about the afterlife don't interest you or appeal to you, right? The fact that these rituals have been maintained, maybe that can still have a kind of a consoling or a powerful, you know, way of, of plugging you into something that is, you know, that is beyond uh, one's own individual uh, uh, experiences. So, you know, you can take that or leave that, but that's something that I often think about um, as somebody who both studies this, but then also, you know, lives a Jewish lifestyle that, doesn't necessarily, um, you know, I don't spend a ton of my time thinking about hell and the fate of, you know, souls of the, of the dead. Um, but maybe that, you know, maybe maybe these rituals take on a meaning that can transcend their origins. Amazing. Thank you so much to everybody who joined uh, our event today. Huge shout out to our partners and friends at Mount Sinai. Another huge shout out and thank you to our speaker today, uh, um, Dr. David, this was so enlightening. We appreciate um, you sharing this great event with us. I look forward uh, to our event on Monday. Folks, make sure that you join our event Monday, Beauty, Mystery, and the Significance in the Vast Universe with Dr. Jennifer Wiseman. Everybody have an amazing day.
Take care. Be well, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank oh, you. Great. Yeah.